Long time, couldn't we? Crazy times. Uh, if there are any kids, we don't have a whole lot, but any kids that are kids, um, you can go downstairs with uh, Mrs. Waterman, and uh, she has work for you to do. Uh, I mean fun. She has fun stuff for you to do. Yes, Yukira, you qualify. Um, <laughs> uh, <coughs> fun stuff to do. Right. <laughs> Um, as they get ready for the Magi boxes and uh, get organized for that. And uh, that's going to be a, a good project for, for us to do. Um, uh, I, we have a lot of stuff going on. We had the Walk for Water last week, Worship in the Park. That was uh, our, our picture. Sorry for those that missed the date and um, missed that event. But... our limits of being a, a generous and giving congregation because at the end of October we will have our mission Sunday where we try to double our collection in order to give it all to our mission um, ministries that we have around the world and uh, then of course we have Thanksgiving boxes at the end of November so uh, it feels like in one sense hey we're not doing anything and in another sense it feels like man there's so much going on so uh, uh, we, we hope that you are able to uh, participate in, in as uh, many of those as you can. Of course, we don't want to put anybody in a position of obligation or hardship, uh, but uh, we, we are glad that we have those opportunities. So we are back in Acts chapter 17 um, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. And as we journey through Acts, Paul is journeying through Turkey, Macedonia, Greece, the, uh, that, that quadrant North eastern quadrant of the Mediterranean, and um, he he has travelled last uh, two weeks ago. Let me see if I can remember where my slides, what my slides are. I should have a map here, I think. Jim, I might need you to do the first one for me. Um, we we should have a, a map, and yeah. So thanks, Jim. He was over here traveling to Troas, through Troas, and then to Philippi, okay? And, uh, and that's in the region of Macedonia, where Alexander the Great came from. And uh, Philippi is a different, you know, native language, um, different, slightly different culture to what they would have had there over in Turkey. And uh, although they're all Greco, Greco-Roman as the predominant uh, culture. But... When he gets there, he, this wasn't where he wanted to go. He kept asking God to go up to the Black Sea, up, up north. And God said, no, I want you to go over into Macedonia. And he had a vision of somebody calling him there. We know what happened. At the end of uh, his time in Philippi, he gets thrown into jail. Uh, God miraculously releases him through an earthquake. And uh, then uh, the, the jailer who is about to kill himself instead becomes a believer. Uh, and so the jailer is taken from despair to, to hope. And, uh, and we see that transformation in him. And then Paul pretty much leaves town. Okay? He gives the, the leaders of the city a bit of a hard time because they've treated him unfairly as a Roman citizen and, uh, and gives them a slight heart attack and they're just glad to get him out of their hair. And, uh, and so he moves on. And when he moves on, he travels, you'll see this purple... Uh, line running across the top here. This is a 
major Roman road. Okay, the Romans are famous for their roads. Uh, this is the Via Ignatia. Uh, that'll be on the quiz at the end of the service. And uh, it runs from uh, over on the eastern end. Uh, up here we have Istanbul, Constantinople, Byzantium. It goes by a lot of different names. Um, and it runs all the way across. You can catch a boat to Italy and head up to Rome. And so it really runs from these two cultural centers. Um, Constantinople, well, it wasn't even called that at the time because Constantine wasn't born. Um, but uh, Byzantium to Rome. And they were the major cities in that part of the world. And Paul is on this road from Philippi to Thessalonica. Uh, you can see that little stretch of it there. And there's a good chance he thought he was on his way to Rome, right? God called me to Macedonia, put me on the highway. I am heading to Rome. We're going to take over this world, right? Look out, Caesar, here comes Jesus. And, uh, and, and so he was on the fast track, literally, to Rome. And um, this is, it's not a great picture. It's a little fuzzy up there. But that's what the fast track looked like in the year, you know, 50 ish AD. Um, it kind of looks like a footpath, a rough footpath. Um, but if you can imagine a road like that running for about 800 miles, uh, that's a whole lot better than mud and puddles and wagon wheels getting stuck in creeks and it would have had bridges at the right time. It cut through mountains where there are mountains and hills. And, uh, so, and it's wide enough for um, uh, two chariots, you know, to be able to pass each other going in opposite directions. So that's, uh, and that's still there. There are parts of that you can go, if you're feeling adventurous, you can go on a walk and uh, actually walk today on portions of or next to the Via Ignatia. So he arrives in um, Thessalonica and he, he goes as he always does in, in Acts 17, if you have your Bibles there, uh, turn to it. I have, have some pictures, but no, no text up on the screen today. And it, he begins as he always does in the synagogue. Verse 2, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he was there for three weeks, he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay. What was it he wanted the Jews to know? The Messiah the anointed one, the deliverer of Israel, has to suffer and rise from the dead. And, and that's a major paradigm shift for his audience. And they're, because they've been thinking of a king, they've been thinking of a deliverer, somebody who's going to shake the foundations of the world when he arrives. And uh, Paul is saying, no, actually, if you go back to the scriptures, and I love that it says that he starts with the scriptures, right? And he says he shows them from the scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now imagine if you show someone that that's what the Messiah has to do, and then you've got this card in your back pocket, and you pull it out, and it says, let me introduce you to Jesus. Because he was God's anointed, and he died, and he rose from the dead. He suffered, he died, and he rose from the dead, just like we've been looking at in the Scriptures. And uh, in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women, but other Jews were jealous. And so, 
Uh, I, I want to come down here to what was it that they, they get together a crowd, sort of a renter mob down at the marketplace. They go and um, grab one of the uh, Greek believers out of his house, a guy named Jason, take him to the city officials. When they get there, it says, these are the men uh, to the sort of the city court. These are the men who have caused trouble all over the world. I think some trans, the King James Version there says, have turned the world upside down. And uh, he says, now they've come here. Jason has welcomed him into the house. Look at the accusation they make. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. This is the clearest passage in Scripture, I think, of anywhere, that not only Christians, but also the um, pagans, the Gentiles, the Romans, regarded Jesus as a competitor to Caesar. That, that it was not, oh, Jesus is subordinate to Caesar, but rather that Caesar is subordinate to Jesus. Jesus is the, not one of the kings, is the king. And Caesar is not. Now, the predominant religion at the time is worship of Caesar. So this is not just a political statement, it's also a, um, a religious statement. And, and so it is a bold accusation for them to make. And I don't think Paul really is backing down from it. Not that Paul was the one on trial here, but that Paul or the Christians are not backing down from that. And they would confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And you can't do that. Just think if we started calling a local, you know, the town supervisor for Greece, we started calling him president. Right? Sooner or later, somebody's going to start asking questions. What's going on in Greece? Why is the town supervisor called a president? We already have a president. Or he's called a governor. We already have a governor. Are you like setting up your own little kingdom there? What's going on in Greece? And people would start to get suspicious and concerned and worried about what was going on because it, now it's things seem to be, you seem to be bringing instability to what has been a stable system for a long time. So Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, and that is uh, the accusation that here in Thessalonica they make against Jesus, uh, against Paul as a follower of Jesus. So there's more trouble there. It, it doesn't actually land at uh, uh, impact Paul directly. But after the three weeks, he moves on. And he moves on to Berea. Um, you don't have to really concern yourself a great deal with where Berea is, except to know that it's not on the Via Ignatia. It's actually south. The, the, the highway to Rome runs east-west. Well, he's had to travel south. Maybe because that was the obvious escape route, and so in order to not be pursued, he, he dropped down south. And so I wonder what's going through Paul's mind as he's no longer on that fast track to Rome. He's like, God, now what? Now where are you taking me? Now what do you have in store for me? It seems like the plans are changing every, every time Paul makes one that God gives him a different one. Now, they run into trouble in Berea, and uh, what happens here is that some of his, he doesn't travel, Paul doesn't travel alone, he travels in a group, and so he leaves 
Timothy and Silas in Berea. And he travels, um, again, not on his own. It says it's with his escorts. He travels to the coast. Okay. And so if, you, uh, if we go back one slide here, um, Berea is another map, but it'll be somewhere like around here. And then he travels, there's Thessalonica, so he's down here. He travels from Berea back to the coast. And then it says from there he goes to Athens. Now, he probably, at this point, since he went to the coast, catches a boat and comes down to Athens or through the islands, whatever, down to Athens here, rather than going overland. So we're going to pick up the story in Athens. Athens is not Rome. Athens has had its heyday. Um, it is, is no longer the great city that it once was, but it is still a significant city. When Paul goes to Athens, this building, the temple to Athena, uh, is on top of the Acropolis, so the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis there in, in Athens has already existed by centuries. Okay? And so Paul looks up to that. That is, today, if you go to Athens, there are around that area, there's a cap on how tall buildings can be because they want to accentuate you know, the grandeur of this uh, wonder, you know, the, this uh, temple. Uh, but you can go to other parts of Athens where they have skyscrapers and you know, a very modern downtown area. Um, but this is not too different. I mean, obviously, it would have been in better condition, better repair. But we still get a sense of what it was like when Paul visited there. And he goes to the marketplace first up. And, and when he goes to the marketplace, it, it wasn't just a, a marketplace. The marketplace is called the Agora. And it started off as a place where, for public conversation, uh, the Greeks were very sort of idealistic. They were um, really encouraged the pursuit of uh, theories and of the minds and some of were still influenced by their culture in so many ways. Uh, think about doctors taking the Hippocratic Oath, right? Comes from a bunch of ancient Greeks standing around in a marketplace back in the days of Paul, um, or back well before the days of Paul, and uh, just pondering the meaning of life and the values of life and that sort of uh, philosophical pursuit. And, and so uh, he goes, uh, it's like over time the public space became commercial space. Does that sound familiar? Um, and so this place for gathering and exchanging ideas becomes a place for gathering and exchanging money and goods and, and the Agora became a marketplace. But there were still spaces. I imagine it kind of like the food court um, here at the Greece Mall. If you go there early in the morning, some of you go there maybe to walk or just to, you want to beat the rush, back in the old days when you went to the mall. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and there in the food court in the morning, there's just a whole bunch of people. Many of them, you can tell, are from eastern, southern Europe. And they're drinking coffee and discussing the weightier matters of the world. And uh, so Paul goes to the ancient version of the Greece Mall food court. And he he's, gets to talking with some groups of people. And, and they're the, um, we're told they're the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, so you've probably read you know, volumes of their writings. Um, they, they are two of the, maybe not, but two of the major philosophies of the time. One says that God, the, the Stoics say that God is in everything. God is in everything. You are kind of God, very pantheistic. That God is just all over. The Epicureans, on the other hand, said God is distant. 
Eat, live your life the way you want, right? Because God, if there is, God is out there. And uh, you just, nature, life sort of runs itself. So two extremes. But these are the people that Paul engages, and he's talking to them about something that probably they'd heard very little about, and that is Judaism, monotheism. And, uh, and so they're, they're a little puzzled by it, but they're also concerned because uh, there were... You see, while they encouraged pursuit of um, new ideas, and they want to learn about other gods, they don't want to be overwhelmed. Maybe you can relate to that in our multicultural society, right? It's like it's interesting if you have one friend from another culture, but if all of a sudden you're the one in, in another culture, it can feel overwhelming. And, and you go, oh, that was cute or something before, but now I feel out of place. And, and so they've got this concern that, oh, yeah, we want to hear these ideas, but if this takes off, if it's like, and Paul is saying it's the right way, not just a way, if this takes off, it could be destructive to our society as we know it. And so they take Paul and we think, uh, he goes to the Areopagus, and the Areopagus is not a university. It's not a place to exchange ideas. Um, it's a rock um, and it's not far from the, the temple, but it's this big rock. There are steps you would have to climb. Presumably they sit up around on the top of it. But it's a court. Okay? It handles the capital murder, you know, capital cases, the, the top cases of the most heinous crimes in that part of the world come to those that sit and judge and, and lead from the Areopagus there in, in Athens. And so Paul is taken up there and and Luke doesn't really describe it as a trial, but it really is a trial, a trial of his ideas. Not that he necessarily has done anything wrong, but a trial of his ideas, and he is defending himself. So Paul, is. this is often used as an a observation about how to do missions, how to talk with people, how to share faith, is he begins with the people where they are. He doesn't just come in and say, hey, let me tell you about ancient Egypt and Abraham. And he says, no, I've been walking around and I've noticed things about you. I, I understand there are things about you that, uh, that you're very religious. He says, that's good. That's good that you're religious. That's good that you're looking for a greater purpose in life. Everybody in that day and time was. But he says, one of the ways I can tell you're very religious is that you have altars to unknown gods. And to us, maybe that sounds a little silly. Um, for them, it was like an insurance policy. They would probably think that us paying a bill every month and getting nothing for it is a bit silly. Um, but they had, so, so what they have with the altars of the unknown gods is their insurance policy. Because if your well-being in life is dependent upon the pleasure of the gods, you don't want to miss any out. You offend a god? Who knows what's going to happen, but it won't be good. So, you have altars, you make sacrifices to all the gods you know, but why not cover your bases and also include those you don't know? You are aware that there are gods you don't know because other surrounding nations also have gods. And you don't know all of their mythologies. 
But maybe one of them needs to be you know, kept happy. And so you have these altars uh, in order to, to please them. So th- this strange inscription, an altar to an unknown god or unknown gods, is actually a sign of religious piety. And so from here, this is the view of, it's sort of like the back view, I guess, of the um, Pantheon, the, the temple of Athena. And, from, and that's from the Acropolis looking up, from, from the Areopagus looking up at the Acropolis. Okay, you got that? Say that quickly. From the Areopagus looking up at the Acropolis. Right? No, you don't have to say it. But this is where Paul is on trial. And it's in the shadow of this great temple that, in fact, the city of Athens takes its name after that goddess. And what he is saying, although he's complimenting them because they're very religious and they worship on these uh, unknown gods, he says, then he says, he actually, the, it's more likely, we haven't found an inscription that says to the unknown god, but we have found inscriptions to gods. So it's likely that he just sort of makes it singular and then says, let me tell you about that God. He says, this God is the creator. This is the God that did everything. What he is essentially saying, and I'd love to know if he ever pointed over to that view, but what he is essentially saying is that is wrong. He's adopting this Jewish apologetic for monotheism and he's saying, I'll tell you about the one God that you're missing. It also happens to be the only true God that you're missing. And let me tell you what he's done. And you can go on and read the rest of that sermon yourself. Um, In verse 30, I will just uh, make this point. And uh, in verse 30, he says, he concludes his sermon, he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He says, you have an altar to unknown gods, you are acknowledging some level of ignorance. He says, but now that I've revealed to you who this God is, he says, you have no excuse. God overlooked that ignorance before, but now you have no excuse. So, this is what you need to do. He says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. In churches, when we talk about repent, we we think very naturally of our sins. Uh, We think we need to turn from our sins and turn towards God. I believe, given the context here, he is almost literally saying, you need to turn from this. Just take the word repent and think turn. You need to turn from this and from all those unknown gods and all those other gods that are based here, that have temples and shrines here, and you need to turn to the one living God. And then he gets down and he talks about, or he's already done that, he's come back to the um, resurrection. Okay. And uh, Oh, no, he does that in verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Notice how in Acts it keeps coming back to the resurrection. And and they say that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, and others said, we want to hear you again. 
We're never told whether Paul got a second hearing there in that court to discuss this. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of where it ends. But it ends with this plea to turn away from other gods and to turn to Yahweh, the God of, of Israel, the God of the Christians. And, and so uh, I, I want to just pop over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and uh, it is in verse 9. And, and so remember Paul has come from Thessalonica to Berea. He didn't stay very long in Berea. And then he travels to Athens. From Athens, he actually sends this letter uh, back to the church in Thessalonica. He only had three weeks there. None of his Timothy or Silas were not told that anyone stayed there. They all left town. And, uh, and so um, in, in, in chapter 3, he says, When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So while all this is going on in Athens, Timothy, who has come and joined Paul, Timothy and so joined him in Athens, now Timothy goes back to Thessalonica. And when he goes back, here's, here's what he says. Sorry, I jumped around there. In chapter 1, he says, We've heard reports how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming coming wrath. So you can see the similarity of his preaching here in Athens and his writing to the church in Thessalonica also taking place in Athens. He says, I'm concerned about your faith. I'm concerned that you turn from idols or I'm glad that you in Thessalonica have turned from idols to the living and true God. He tells these people at the Areopagus, you need to turn from idols to the living and true God. So that is kind of, I think, if you want a summary of this message, Turn from idols to the living and true God. You might say, Peter, what are you talking about? How do, we, how do we do that? We're sitting in a church. How do you want us to turn from idols? So I'm going to uh, uh, sort of rely on somebody else here. And uh, this um, Timothy Keller has written a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods. And it's a little book. If you want it, one of you can borrow it afterwards. Um, and a short read, Counterfeit Gods, another way of describing idols. And in this book, he discusses uh, how, all, not all, but some of the different ways that idols still compete for the place of priority in our hearts, in our relationship with God. Uh, just think, uh, Exodus 20, right, verses 4 and 5, the first of the commandments, have no other gods, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't bow down to them or worship them. That's where the Ten Commandments begin. Don't have other gods. Then from there, Israel kind of consistently ignored that. And they traveled through. Eventually, though, we get to the prophets. Isaiah and Ezekiel are a couple that I think of. Uh, Isaiah 44. We read earlier from Isaiah. Oh, no, we didn't. But Isaiah 44. Um, there's this long description of making idols. 
And, and the prophets kind of mock and they say, hey, why do you worship bits of wood and stone that somebody has carved? They're like, that's silly. Like, you should be worshipping the person that made them, not, the, not them. Now, of course, the people were not stupid, even back then. They knew that those idols only represent the God, and not the God, but they represent the God. Nonetheless, if you took you know, an idol and you banged it and you broke it, they would be concerned that the God would be upset that you had disrespected it in that way. There was a connection there of some sort. There were holy places and temples to worship those idols. But it's not that they, you know, the, the prophets kind of make light. You know, they sort of use this absurd, absurd example of saying, you're worshipping bits of wood that people made. But people didn't think that. They knew that the gods were out there in some way. So uh, that, that's kind of, you know, just these idols have always been part of not only world history, but also religious history. And so Keller, he says this, he, he poses this for us. He says, what then is an idol? And, and we can answer that in part by saying, is anything more important to you than God? Is there anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what God alone can give? He goes on. I'm just going to read this because he just words it better than I do. I think it will be quicker too. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What are the things in your life that if you lost it, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself? He goes on and gives a list. It can be family and children, or career and money making, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. How about your personal health and physical abilities? When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it a codependency, but it's really idolatry. And idolatry is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something. But perhaps the best one is worship. You worship your job. Like, no, I grumble and I complain about it all the time. But what if you didn't have it? Or if you didn't have a job? What's your life going to be about now? Have you lost all your purpose, all your meaning? How much of yourself is wrapped up in that position? And so I I think they're challenging questions for us. His book goes through, it spends a a chapter on different things, such as uh, love, money, success, power. All things that maybe they have some good to them, but many of us can see the problems that arise with them if we're pursuing them. Uh, sort of with a single focus. But he also points out some hidden idols, idols of our culture. These are values that are are promoted 
as being positive, as being admirable, and we oftentimes buy into them and live our lives according to those values. Um, so again, some of the ones that he lists are profit. You ever worked for a corporation whose interest is to make a profit? How much does that dominate your decision making, your workflow, your values on the job? Your, and they become your values. How important is profit? Because it seems like a good thing. Nobody wants to be at a business that's losing money, right? But it can. How much of a profit is enough? Or is that even a question? How about individual freedom? This was written in 2009, well before the pandemic. Uh, can individual freedom be an idol? Is that a social value that we can uh, highlight and accentuate too much? I have a book that I want to get on my shelf. Um, and it's, it's called, I have the first one in the series, but the second one in the series is called Misreading Scripture Through Individualistic Eyes. And, and what it's saying, because uh, I've read like synopsis of it, is basically that very often we come, America is perhaps the most, the United States, the most individualistic society in the world. And, and as a consequence of that, we can sometimes read um, parts of the Bible that were written to churches, written to groups of people, and make them about myself. Anyone ever been inspired? Maybe you have up on your fridge. You know, God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Right? And, and what we've done is we've taken a promise to the people of Israel uh, about exile and coming back from exile in a very particular context to a whole nation. Made it about me. What's my next job going to be like? What's, what's going to be tomorrow when I roll out of bed? God, you know, I have plans for you. Plans to prosper, to build up, not to tear down. So our individual freedom, our individualism can be, can, not always is, can be an idol that we're not even on our radar to be checking for. Religious success. I would love for this church to be five times the size that it is. Because I would love for that many people and more to be part of the kingdom of God. Right? I, I think we should long for that. For, for, for thousands in the city of Rochester to come to Christ. That should be our dream. I think that's God's dream. right? For the whole world to come to serve Him. But it's so easy in that process. And we see it in large churches all over the place. For leaders for members, for that to become so focused on that growth that the growth itself becomes the goal and becomes the idol, not the souls of the individuals. And then the last one that he lists in there is uh, racial pride. Racial pride is perhaps something that many of us have had uh, as part of our culture. And, and, and we may call it something different, national or cultural pride or different things, but to, to just the, and so to change that is to say the way that I view myself maybe needs to change. The way I view other people maybe needs to change. But that's hard to do because we've been sort of um, formed with that view of the world. And so uh, it, it's challenging to make that adjustment. And so do we worship unknown gods? 
Are there gods in our life, in our cultures, in our societies that are unknown to us because we don't take the time to stop and consider and think about them, to be challenged, because we say no too quickly? But in fact, they have a greater influence upon our life than we're willing to acknowledge. So I think that's our question for today, that God, Paul, calls us to turn from idols to serve a true and living God. I want to just uh, give you a, a, a change of tone here a little bit. Uh, I put this together. Top 10 signs. Think of David Letterman, if you will. I wish I had like the little cards to throw. Top 10 list. Um, and, uh, and so top 10 signs, politics may be your idol. And I'm picking politics, but you could put all sorts of things in there. Sports. Um, you could put, um, I'm trying to think, you know, football, if you want to be more specific. You could put gardening or family. You know, come up with all sorts of things. May be your idol. When? You know who the donkey and the elephant represent, but not the fish or the lamb. Uh, perhaps you know the names of more news commentators than you do Christian authors. Okay. What if you can't leave for church until meat press is over on a Sunday morning? All right. Not pointing any fingers at anyone in any of these. But top ten signs, politics may be your idol. Number seven, uh, when you're more concerned over the future of the country than the future of the church. Right? You may have crossed that line. Number six, you name your pets after your favorite presidents. Okay, not saying anything bad, but just be aware, maybe. maybe. Um, number five, you think Romans 13, it's not the command to pray, but to uh, be subject yourself to, to the governing authorities, uh, only applies when to the person that you want as president. All right? Uh, so that, uh, that, that works out very conveniently. Um, all right, number four, moving down this list. Your neighbors know what political party you vote for, but not where you go each Sunday morning. Ouch. Okay. Ouch. Uh, number three, you feel closer to an atheist who votes like you than to a believer who votes differently. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Number two on this list, you know all your political representatives of your local, state, federal, every house possible but you think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the first four apostles. Uh, time to spend less time voting and more time reading. And uh, I've got number one here for you. Uh, you pray more for a political candidate to win than for God's kingdom to come on earth. His will be done in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so uh, what's your prayer life look like? How does that represent your values? And uh, then I'll just give you a bonus one here. If you use a politician's Twitter feed to fact-check your preacher... Um, then uh, I, I think you have crossed that line uh, irreversibly. So that's uh, politicians, right? Uh, or, or politics is certainly a, a, an option. But there, there are many things that can invade our lives. And I think Paul's message to us in our culture is not going to be that different to what it was to the people in Rome. You need to give up something in order to turn to Jesus. What is it that you need to give up? And I think it's a, an ongoing process for those of us in the church. As I said, we'll close just again by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think it was, um, and uh, verse was it 9 there. It says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come.